Let's bow and pray before we open God's word together. Lord, it is our request that you would bring glory to your name this morning in this church through the preaching of this text, through these imperfect servants. Lord, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We thank you for your truth. As we just sang, it is a fount of perfect wisdom, our highest good, our unending need. We come to you, Lord, this morning, remembering our need to see Christ, to meditate on his work, to behold his glory, to believe in him, to honor him, to submit to him. Lord, may your word be especially clear to us today. I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to see and to receive all that you would have for us in it. Unite us together around this truth, in the truth, and exalt the name of your son, Jesus, here we pray. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Please open this morning to Luke chapter 11. If you've read the gospels for yourselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you've been around over the last several months as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, then you're probably aware that the Gospel accounts are peppered with these stories of demonic confrontations. And for most of us, that can feel a little bit strange, can't it? What do we make of these bizarre and sometimes unsettling stories where Jesus is engaging with, sometimes speaking to, and always triumphing over and casting out these fallen spirits, these unclean spirits, these demons. Some people will try to downplay these stories. They'll try to explain them away as either myths that didn't really happen, or perhaps as, as maybe an ignorant and superstitious approach to, to maybe what they didn't understand in the first century about physical illness, mental illness, as if first century witnesses were maybe not as smart as us. They didn't know the difference between a seizure and mental illness and demonic presence. I think that's not only extremely condescending toward the authors of scripture, but it really underestimates and is sadly blind to the true nature of things. There really is a spiritual realm and there really is a significant conflict that is going on these demonic encounters that Jesus has are not just weird little interruptions in the otherwise normal day-to-day -day life and ministry of Jesus. No, these conflicts, when they occur, are actually glimpses into a larger cosmic war that has been going on since the very beginning. We see this war beginning in Genesis chapter 3 as the serpent enters into the garden, invading that place where God dwelt with his people. And he launched the first attack. Did God really say? We see glimpses into this cosmic war all throughout the Old Testament, not to mention all of them, but one of my favorites is in 1 Samuel chapter 5, when the Ark of the Covenant, which represents <clears throat> the presence and the, the glory and the power of God, falls into the hands of the Philistines, Israel's enemy. They take the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of one of their gods, a god named Dagon. The next morning, they show up and their god has tipped over and fallen on his face. So like good little idol worshipers, they prop him back up. They come back the next morning. He's fallen again, except this time it says his head and his hands have been cut off. It's a little glimpse into this larger cosmic war that's actually going on. We see it in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to meet him at Mount Carmel. They pray and they wail and they cut themselves, but to no avail. Elijah briefly and quietly prays, 
And God sends fire from heaven. It's a contest. It's a competition. A head-to-head between the powers of darkness and the true God. We see a glimpse into this cosmic war in Daniel chapter 10. As an angelic messenger tells Daniel that he meant to come earlier, but the prince of Persia opposed him. There's a cosmic war as these demonic entities that actually represent and even empower and, and, and steer the rise and the fall of nations and empires. They are clashing going head-to-head in spiritual combat. This war is intensified, and it's forever changed by the coming of Jesus into the world. The incarnation is itself an invasion of the kingdom of darkness, and this invasion is not without resistance. As soon as Jesus is anointed for ministry at his baptism, remember what happens next? He's immediately tempted by Satan in the wilderness. In fact, the first miracle that Luke records in his gospel, is Jesus' rebuke of a demon in the synagogue at Capernaum. It's a conflict. Luke 11 records for us another such encounter between Jesus and the powers of darkness. It's a conflict with a demonic spirit that presents a real challenge to the people who are observing all of this. How do they explain this authority of Jesus? What do they make of him? Where does this power come from? And the undeniable power and authority of Jesus that we see every time he comes into conflict with his spiritual enemy, it presents us with a choice to make. What will we make of Jesus? And what side will we choose in this spiritual kingdom conflict? Our text is going to begin this morning, Luke chapter 11 and verse 14. And just to walk through the story, it begins in these first few verses with a scandalous accusation against Jesus. It's verses 14 through 16. We see this accusation. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. What triggers this entire scene is a miraculous work of grace. As Jesus once again delivers a man from spiritual bondage, the demonic being has afflicted this man and rendered him mute, meaning he's unable to speak. But Jesus frees the man and his speech returns, which amazes everyone. It says that the people marveled, verse 14. But this marveling is not necessarily the same as faith. Saying wow is not the same as worship. Sadly, they were unwilling, some of them, unwilling to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and that his power is actually from God. There's actually two unbelieving responses we see here. The first is that some attributed his power to the devil. You see that in verse 15. This whisper campaign is really a lie that's intended to discredit Jesus. They're trying to counteract the conclusion that some people might come to that perhaps Jesus is really a prophet sent from God or maybe even the Messiah himself. There's others who had a different unbelieving response. We see this described in verse 16. Others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. They wanted more. They wanted another proof. To them, the jury is still out on who Jesus really is. And the deliverance of this man right before them, although they are amazed not to mention all of the other miracles that Jesus has done, apparently it's not enough to convince them yet. 
Jesus is going to address this response later. Verses 29 through 32, he condemns this generation as being an evil generation that keeps seeking after a sign. But for now, in our text, he's actually going to address the first group, the ones who bring this scandalous accusation against him that his power is actually satanic in its source. We see this charge in verse 15. Some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. See, these people couldn't deny that Jesus was doing miraculous things. They couldn't ignore the healings. They couldn't ignore the acts of authority. They couldn't ignore the fact that this man, who previously was mute, who was enslaved and and in bondage to these spiritual powers, that he's now free and he's healed. Their eyes and their ears are telling them Jesus has power. But their hard hearts refuse to acknowledge where that power comes from. And they have to explain it somehow. So they accuse him of wielding a satanic Power. And this story is one that was spread repeatedly by opponents of Jesus. We actually see it pop up in several places in the Gospels. Apparently, this is the way you get someone canceled back then, because they had actually used this tactic not only against Jesus, but also against John the Baptist. In Luke 7, Jesus refers to John. He says, John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So this is a common tactic that they use. And they say that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Beelzebul was an ancient Canaanite deity. This is a god that was worshipped in Ekron, a Philistine city. And the name means lord of the dwelling place. It's Baal. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll see this name Beelzebul spelled Beelzebub, which was actually a slur. The Jews, in a great and brilliant twist, had sort of tweaked the last letter of the name so that it changed the meaning. Instead of Lord of the dwelling place, Lord of the temple, this exalted name, when they changed the spelling, it turns out to mean Lord of the flies, Lord of the dung heap. It's a derogatory term that they had used to, to scorn this false god. Now, false gods are really nothing. False gods are actually less than nothing. As the Jews would rehearse daily in the Shema, there is only one God. Psalm 135, 15 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The false gods of the nations are rightly mocked and derided as being nothing. But there are real spiritual powers at work in the world. And the animating powers behind these many so-called gods who deceive men are actually demonic spirits. In Leviticus 17 and 1 Corinthians 10, we find that those who offer sacrifices to these false gods are really sacrificing to demons. So this Beelzebul is rightly understood to really be a high-ranking demonic power, one who is vile, one who is corrupt, one who is derided as the Lord of dung. And they took that and pinned it on Jesus. Pastor John MacArthur points out the horrifying blasphemy of such a statement. I'm just going to quote him because I can't say it better. They called the highest and most holy one the lowest and most evil. They called the one who is pure good Pure evil. They called God the devil. Perfect holiness, wickedness. Truth incarnate, a liar. 
and they branded the Son of God a servant of Satan. That's what's going on here. Such derogatory speech is so serious that in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, we find that Jesus actually declared that kind of saying to be beyond forgiveness. It's the unpardonable sin. To reject Jesus to his face, the incarnate Son of God in the flesh, despite his miracles, despite his teaching, and to look him in the eye and attribute his work and the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. That is irredeemable. It's the impardonable, the unpardonable sin. Here in Luke's gospel, we find that Jesus does not allow such a notion to go unchallenged. Following this scandalous accusation, we see that Jesus will skillfully answer that accusation, as he often does. He answers this accusation in verses 17 through 20 with several different arguments. In the first, we see in verses 17 through 18, first he gives an argument from reason. An argument from reason. This is a logical argument, verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Jesus knows their thoughts. And as we often see in the gospels, whether it's secret thoughts of the heart or things being muttered under their breath, Jesus seizes upon that, says, let's have a conversation about that right now. And he counters this accusation with a logical rebuttal. He says, listen, you guys know that when there's internal conflict, whether it be in a nation or in a church or in a business or in a family, anytime there is internal conflict, when there's division, it inevitably leads to collapse. This is common sense. And these people, of all people, should know this from their own history. Centuries earlier, the nation Israel had split in two. The kingdom had been divided. Ten tribes in the north, known as Israel, with their capital in Assyria. Two tribes in the south, known as Judah, with their capital in Jerusalem. Eventually, the divided nations of Israel and Judah would both fall to foreign powers and be taken into exile. Only a unified kingdom can stand. Maybe Satan would fake a deliverance once or twice as a deception. But listen, Jesus has been doing this over and over and over again. It's not the first time. And the result of Jesus' works of deliverance has been people praising and worshiping God, glorifying God. For Satan to do that to himself would be stupid. It's like a football player tackling his teammate. That's like a basketball player shooting on the wrong basket. This doesn't make any sense. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It's really fascinating how so many arguments against Jesus have these flaws, have these major gaps in them, but people readily embrace them anyway, don't they? And it's because ultimately they hate Jesus. Matthew tells us that this lie was being promoted by the Pharisees. Mark tells us this lie was being spread by scribes from Jerusalem. So these are people who have an ax to grind. These are people who have a vested interest in discrediting Jesus. He's exposed them. He's condemned condemned them. He's rejected their authority. He has been very unimpressed by their supposed righteousness. And so they're seeking to kill him. So it's not like they don't understand. No, they actually do understand. They just don't want to believe Their unbelief reveals a hard heart. 
Following this argument from reason, Jesus makes a second logical argument. In verse 19, he makes a demand for consistency. In verse 19, he says, and here's a second if statement. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus demands that they be consistent with their reasoning. He says, hey, let's suppose for argument's sake, just for a moment, let's suppose that they are right. If that is the case, that Jesus is using a satanic power to perform these miracles, then what about others who have cast out demons? On what basis can they accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan, but they don't make the same accusation against others? They need to be consistent. Either everyone who does this is doing it by the power of Satan, or they need to explain why they're only making this accusation against Jesus, because it sure seems like they're just biased. Because this argument cuts both ways. And the fact that they are not being consistent, the fact that they really have an internal bias against Jesus, that is something that is going to be evident in the judgment. He says, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. He says, you're not going to get away with this twisted and inconsistent argument. Your sons that Jesus references may refer to Jewish exorcists, those that belonged to the party of the Pharisees, maybe priests who engaged in in attempting to help people who were suffering demonic oppression. But I think it may be a better reading to actually say that Jesus is referring to his own followers. He's referring to the 12 and to the 72 witnesses. Remember, he had sent out the 12 on a mission to preach the gospel, and they had cast out demons, proving and illustrating the truth of their message. Later, Jesus had sent out 72 of his followers. They too had gone out preaching the gospel, and they returned, remember, rejoicing, saying that even the demons are subject to us in your name. These were sons of Israel. They were faithful Jews who were actually following Jesus, and Jesus had granted them this authority. So if we take this phrase to refer to them, I think it makes sense then why Jesus says, therefore, they will be your judges. See, these scribes and these Pharisees who are making the accusation, they considered themselves surely to be very prominent in the kingdom of God. But Jesus promised the privilege of such prominence to those who embrace him those who rightly believe in him. Later on in Luke 22, verse 28, Jesus says to the 12, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, Jesus' followers, the apostles, were destined to reign with him and to have a specific role of judgment in his kingdom. You see, the disciples knew that Jesus' power was really from God, and they had confessed, Peter had confessed as their representative, that he is the Christ of God. So they were on the right side of this argument, they're on the right side of history, and they're destined to sit in judgment over these self-righteous and unbelieving opponents of Jesus for making this scandalous accusation against him. By these arguments, Jesus has exposed the logical dead end of their accusation. How can a divided kingdom stand? What about the others who have been casting out demons? Why are you just making this accusation against me right now? It doesn't make sense. So what then is the real explanation for his power? What's the right 
conclusion that they should be drawing from the fact that Jesus is exercising incredible power and authority over the demons. Well, Jesus' third argument, the third if statement in verse 20 is really a convincing conclusion. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, here's the third if statement. If that, or sorry, verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God, there we go. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This third if statement explains the true source of his power. He says it is the very finger of God. This is a unique phrase and one that takes us back to Exodus chapter 8. There's another place in scripture where this phrase, the finger of God, is used. And it occurs in the midst of a dramatic contest between God and Pharaoh. This is during that contest where God is commanded through his servant Moses that Pharaoh should let his people go. Pharaoh says no, and so 10 successive plagues fall upon the Egyptians, each one exposing and humiliating one of the supposed gods of Egypt. And at first, Pharaoh, if you remember, had attempted to go toe-to-toe with Yahweh as the plagues begin to fall on Egypt. In fact, the first two plagues are replicated, they're duplicated by Pharaoh's magicians, these wizard-like priests of pagan gods. When the Nile River was turned to blood, they also were able to turn water into blood. When the second plague fell and and Moses called forth frogs upon Egypt, they also were able to call forth frogs. So their power is real, but it's also limited. When the third plague fell and the gnats swarmed into Egypt, they were not able to match that sign. They were not able to do it. In Exodus 8, verse 18, it says, The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. I think the choice of this phrase by Jesus is brilliant for a few reasons. First of all, it perfectly fits what Jesus is doing in terms of his mission in terms of why he came. Just as Moses led God's people out of bondage in a great exodus, so too Jesus has come to set captives free, to liberate the oppressed. In Luke chapter four, we saw that Jesus preaches from the scroll of Isaiah and he quotes that scripture. The spirit of God is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim good news to the captives, to set uh, those who are oppressed free, to proclaim the Lord's favor. He's bringing freedom and rescue It's an even greater exodus than before. And if Jesus is the new Moses, guess who's playing the part of hard-hearted Pharaoh? It's the ones who refuse to acknowledge the power of God. Pharaoh had arrogantly said, who is the Lord that I should fear him? And now these people are in effect saying, who is Jesus that we should listen to him? Jesus is no trickster. Jesus is no magician. There is no witchcraft or satanic power being used. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God's anointed who has the spirit of God poured out upon him so that he might proclaim and establish God's kingdom and lead God's people in a new exodus. God got great glory over Pharaoh. If you read the rest of the story in Exodus... He humiliated the gods of Egypt. He crushed the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. The implication is that these people better be careful 
because they are lining up on the wrong side. Ironically, the pagan magicians of Egypt recognized the finger of God. They recognized God's power in the signs that Moses and Aaron performed. Would these people recognize the work of God, the finger of God in the ministry of Jesus? They had made a scandalous accusation. Jesus has skillfully answered this accusation with his arguments. That brings us to a, a, a third point. Jesus, third then, begins to assert the true nature of his mission. He says, here's what I'm actually doing. Here's the true nature of my mission. In verses 21 through 22, Jesus illustrates exactly what it is that he's doing. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus illustrates what he's doing with a word picture, describing a contest between a strong man and one who is stronger. It's very clear here that Satan is the strong man, one who is well-equipped, one who is dug in, one who has power and control over his domain. We see this authority that Satan has over the kingdoms of the world in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. In Luke 4, verse 5, it says that the devil took Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. That offer that Satan made to give Jesus the kingdoms of the world and authority over them, that was a real offer because he actually does have power and control in this realm. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that Satan is the god of this world and that he's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is strong, and he does in some ways, rule in this world. But Jesus is the one who is stronger, the one who comes to overthrow the strong man and take all of his stuff. 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Remember, there's this cosmic conflict that's going on. And Jesus says, this is why I came. I came to win. John 12, 31, as Jesus prepares to go to the cross, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You see, it will be through Christ's death on the cross that he will land the death blow on the head of his enemy. It's through his work on the cross that Jesus will nullify the two greatest weapons that Satan has, sin and death. Jesus sets us free from sin through his death, and he breaks the power of death through his resurrection. He disarms the strong man. He takes away his armor, and then he plunders his goods. That's what Paul describes in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Sin and death have been rendered powerless by Christ to damn and destroy those who believe. We who believe have been set free. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
Jesus is one stronger who comes and binds the strong man, plunders his goods, divides the spoil. One day when Jesus returns, the book of Revelation tells us that he will bind, literally bind, Satan. In Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, John writes, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. At the end of this millennial reign, at the end of this period of the kingdom, Satan will be released briefly, and he will gather up one final rebellion where he will be decisively defeated by Jesus Christ once and for all. In Revelation 20, verse 10, we see what happens at the end of that climactic battle. It says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is what is coming. Romans 16 puts it very succinctly. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see, this invasion that Jesus leads right now seems to be in many ways an invisible invasion. He's setting souls free. He's redeeming his people by giving them a new heart. But this invisible invasion is only the prelude to the eventual and inevitable kingdom that is going to be comprehensive. It will not only be spiritual, it will be physical and political and universal. It will be the eternal reign of Christ where Psalm 110 puts it, all his enemies will be put under his feet. Jesus says, that's what I'm actually doing right now. I am the strong man, the stronger man, who's come to defeat my enemy and take away his armor and divide the spoil. I have come to conquer. I've come to win. That's the real explanation of what's going on. And all of this leads, finally, to a call for a decision. In verse 23, Jesus puts the ball now in their court. Verse 23, Jesus concludes, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. You see, these people have been evaluating whose side Jesus is really on. They've been speculating that, that maybe Maybe he's a double agent. Maybe he's playing for the other team. They're trying to figure Jesus out. But the real issue, as Jesus makes clear, is whose side are they on? Whose side are they on? Jesus draws a very clear line in the sand. He says, listen, you must choose. Whoever is not with me, whoever does not believe in my message, whoever does not submit to my lordship, whoever does not repent of their sin and lay hold of my promise by faith, whoever does not take up their cross to follow me, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me, whoever does not participate in this mission that I am on, scatters. There is no neutrality. If you are not with Jesus, you're against him. We find echoes here of what Joshua said in Joshua 24. Choose you this day whom you will serve. There may at first seem to be tension 
with Jesus' words in chapter 9. If you remember in chapter 9, John, one of the disciples, had said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. There's some similar language there, but the context is very different. Jesus, in this passage, Luke chapter 11, he's not talking about whether or not someone is with us, part of our group, part of our tribe. He's talking about whether or not someone is with him, whether or not they're for him. And he leaves no wiggle room here. You, you are either with him or you are against him. You either believe he is the son of God or you deny it. You either repent of your sin or you persist in your sin. You either trust in the gospel or you trust in yourself. You, you are either part of his kingdom or you are on the enemy's side. Jesus describes being with him, actually, as participating in his mission. He says, whoever does not gather with me scatters. This gathering metaphor is one that calls to mind the imagery of sheep and a flock and a shepherd, where Christ, as the good shepherd, is calling to his sheep and gathering them into one flock. He's building his church, and those who are with him participate in that endeavor. It brings to mind the imagery of a harvest, a metaphor that Jesus has already used to describe the mission that his disciples are called to. In chapter 10, verse 2, remember, he tells them that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And just as sheaves of wheat are collected and bundled and, and brought in for threshing, they're gathered together. So those who are with Jesus are called to labor in his field and to labor for his harvest. Jesus says, if you're with me, you're part of that gathering movement. But those who are not with him, they scatter. In refusing to come to Jesus and embrace him, sinners choose to side with the opposition, to remain in service to Satan, who seeks to scatter and devour the sheep, who seeks to interfere with the harvest and wreak havoc on the faithful labors of those who are out in God's field. So to summarize what's going on here in this text, Jesus has spelled it out for them. The explanation of his supernatural power over the demons is the very finger of God. Jesus is doing the works of God because he is the son of God. And he's doing the work of God in the power of God in order to establish the kingdom of God. That is what is taking place. He's come to overthrow the enemy and plunder his kingdom. Now the real question is whose side will they choose? In terms of how we must apply this text this morning, I want to suggest to you just a few very brief points of application. First of all, I think this text gives us a truth to believe in. There's a doctrinal truth here to believe in that the spiritual authority of Jesus, it testifies to his divine nature. And we as Christians are those who gladly confess that Jesus is the son of God. Like C.S. Lewis famously pointed out, Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Rather than accuse Jesus or question Jesus or put him on trial, Jesus is to be worshipped as the Son of God. This is a truth that we believe in. But it's not only a truth that we are to believe in, but a second application for us today. And this, I think, especially is one that is so relevant for for where we're at right now in our culture, everything that's going on in our world. This is also a truth to rejoice in. There's a truth to rejoice in in this text that the superior power of Jesus secures the salvation of those who are in bondage and that the superior power of Jesus guarantees the victory and the success and the glory of his kingdom. This ought to be immensely encouraging to us because we still live in the midst of this conflict, don't we? There are lies that float around in this world. There are lies that seek to to penetrate the church, lies that seek to creep into your home and your family. And we're in a war against these lies. There are spiritual powers at work in the world today who aim to kill and destroy, to subvert the truth, to bring harm to people who are created in the image of God, to undermine the truth of the gospel, to destabilize and destroy the church. We're in the midst of a war every day. But we rejoice in this truth that the superior power of Jesus rescues us and guarantees the success of God's kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, after talking about the plans for the kingdom and the resurrection that is to come and the victory that will be Christ's, Paul writes, therefore, my beloved brothers, because of all that, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. We ought to be encouraged by this truth, to rejoice in this truth, that this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus is doing. We know who wins. And I think a a final point of application is this text not only gives us a truth to believe and a truth to rejoice in, but it also gives us a decision that needs to be made. Are you with him or are you against him? Only you can answer that. And you must be reminded that there is no neutrality in this war. There is no fence to sit on. Jesus' words offer us a warning because to be against him is to be on the losing side. It is to experience his judgment. It is to experience eternal loss, eternal death in hell. And Thomas Watson, the, the Puritan, his book called The Doctrine of Repentance He writes, a hard heart is the anvil upon which the hammer of God's justice will be striking for all eternity. Are you with him or are you against him? There's a decision that needs to be made. Let me speak a word of encouragement to those of you who are believers. By God's grace and in his mercy, you've made the right choice. You're on the right side. So be encouraged by that. But I want you to not only just be thankful and encouraged, 
I also hope that you can recognize that as those who embrace Jesus as the Christ, as, as those of us who have received his grace, we have a job to do. We're not simply passive observers in this cosmic war. You have a part to play. We are participants. Through us, Christ gathers. He uses us to spread his gospel. He uses us to build his church. He uses us to further his mission in the world as we seek to make disciples of all the nations for his glory. And we do this with joy, knowing that the victory ultimately depends not on us, not on our strength, not on our wisdom, but on the superior power and authority of the resurrected Christ. So Christian, embrace your part in this mission. There's many other passages we might go to to start discussing what that looks like. But right here, I think Jesus indicates that a big way we participate in this cosmic war is the Great Commission. Whoever is with me gathers. That's how we participate. Although Jesus has experienced much resistance as he invaded the kingdom of darkness, and although that resistance continues today, we meet up with it every day. We can rejoice in the truth that our king came to rescue us from bondage through his death on the cross. And his kingdom triumphs over the kingdom of darkness. May we serve him with joy as we await his return. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we confess in faith this morning that you are the son of God. You are sent from God. You are God in the flesh, and you did those mighty works by the power of the Spirit of God. You did it to prove who you were, and you did it to illustrate exactly what your mission is. You came to rescue people like us who were in, in slavery and in bondage to sin and death and Satan. Lord, we thank you that it is by your strength, by your work, that we are saved. And we thank you now for the great privilege of participating with you in your mission. I pray that you would strengthen us as we engage in this cosmic conflict, whether it be combating the lies that swirl around in our society, whether it be combating the sin that vies for control in our flesh, whether it be seeking to um, strengthen and build your church and share the gospel and build up other believers in their faith, no matter what it is that we engage in in this conflict. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to rely on your strength, that we would remember that you are the one who is stronger. And, and it depends not on our strength, not on our victory, but on yours. We give you glory, Lord Jesus, and we look forward to the day when you will bring your victory to completion over the enemy, when he will be humiliated, judged, and sentenced to the lake of fire for eternity. And in that day, we will worship you as the smoke of his torment goes up forever. We will glorify you for your justice, for your righteousness, for your wrath. And we will give thanks with humility and awe that we have been chosen to belong to you, to belong to your kingdom, that you have rescued us. Lord, we worship your great name. And I ask that any today who are not with you, who have not received you, who have not repented of sin and believed in your gospel, I pray that today they would humble themselves and recognize that you are the son of God. And I pray that they would believe and bow their knee to you as Lord. Amen.